0: What's the secret to a happy life? For the answer, join us in Madrid from Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of June for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference. Head to conference.monocle.com for all the details and to buy your ticket. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. My experience of being a human being has definitely felt a lot like confinement. Confinement to a family a family system confinement to identity in terms of the history of my family what I look like as well as confinement as a mind confined to a body I've never felt like my mind fits into my brain. When I'm using my mind and body to connect to something more spiritual, my brain doesn't seem very important all of a sudden. So I think that there is something that feels like imprisonment in mortality and physicality. Otessa Mosfegh's writing is whip-smart and bleakly
1: funny her characters unapologetic, alienated, and almost always intoxicated. She grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, the daughter of classical musician parents, her mother Croatian, her father Iranian. She studied music as a child, then shifted her attention to fiction. Otessa graduated from Bernard College in 2002, and after spending time in both China and New York, went on to attend the MFA programme at Brown. She started with short stories, many of which appeared in The Paris Review, The New Yorker, Granta, and others. Her story, Bettering Myself, won the Paris Review's Plimpton Prize for Fiction in 2013. Her first longer piece of fiction, the historical novella McGlue, was published in 2014. Her second novel, Eileen, won the Penn Hemingway Award and was shortlisted for both the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. In 2017, she published Homesick for Another World, a collection of her short stories, and her third novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, hit shelves last year. I'm Chloe Ashby, and Otessa Moshfeg joined me on The Big Interview. Otessa Moshfeg, thank you so much for joining me in the studio here at Midori House, and welcome to The Big Interview. I thought we'd start talking about your most recent novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which follows a young woman in New York who decides to sleep for a year and um, emerge reborn and a better person. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about how this idea came to you.
0: It sort of dawned on me that this was the book I was writing once I had just been sketching out the exposition of the book about this character with her daily habits which amounted to going downstairs from her apartment to a bodega and getting coffee and then coming back up to apartment. (laughs) It's like there was a sense of, okay, this woman is up to something and that she's up to trying to do nothing. And then this project of sleeping for a year sort of born out of the character herself. I kind of figured that this is something that she might take on. Okay.
1: How do you know when an idea is worth pursuing? I don't know how, how you work, whether you have multiple ideas for novels in your head at one time or whether you, you're very much focused on one until you get to the end of that, then another.
0: It's always a bit different. Sometimes I really zero in on one project at a time, and, and that's what happened with my year of rest and relaxation. I actually wrote probably the first 100 pages and then didn't touch the book for a year. And then when I went back to it, I wrote it completely wrong. So a lot of the, a lot of the writing of this book was in erasure and rewriting. And I didn't do anything else while I was working on that. Maybe maybe have worked on some short stories along the way in between, mm-hmm. but I was really obsessed and focused with this novel. Sometimes I can do more than one thing at a time, but I prefer not to. And the
1: character herself, who is this nameless narrator, why did you want to spend
0: time with her? Well, I think I wanted to spend time with her partially because as the author, her predicament, her sleep predicament, allowed a lot of narrative room in this sort of paradoxical way. While she isn't doing anything, the structure of the book was such that almost anything seemed like it could happen, especially when she starts taking this one particular sleeping medication that ended up being the sort of magic ticket to her experiment and transformation. So there was just a lot of room, there was a lot of imaginative room. When a character is not inert, in a sense, you are forced to consider her environment in an exaggerated way, as well as her past. So the character became really fully formed when I imagined her past and childhood, her parents, what she went through. She's an orphan. She was orphaned while she was in college, which was something I if I considered, you know, had that happened to me, my God, like college, being in your early 20s already with perfectly healthy and able parents is difficult enough, but to feel stranded like that would really impact a worldview. I was curious about her arrogance, I was curious about her own creativity, and her relationships with really her one and only friend. Riva, who ends up playing a a large role in her story. I wanted to ask a little bit about, so characters often
1: seem to appear in confinement in your writing. Mm -hmm. Um, This narrator who barely leaves her apartment, and then in Eileen, which you published in 2015, you have this sort of glum, fairly glum young woman who works in a juvenile prison, I think you even have a short story called The Locked Room. What is it that attracts you to that theme, I guess? Is it the challenge of it?
0: Well, I should also say that my first book ever, which was a novella called McGlue, mm-hmm. also involves a man locked first in in the hold of a ship as it sails around the world and then in a prison cell in Salem, Massachusetts in the U.S. So, yeah, I am definitely attracted to characters in confinement why? I mean, intellectually, I could say that it makes sense. If I'm writing about the human condition, which is essentially organisms trapped in time and space with consciousness that is separated from other consciousnesses. I don't know if I'm going to put this in the right way. My experience of being a human being has definitely felt a lot like confinement. Confinement to a family, a family system. Confinement to identity in terms of the history of my family, what I look like, the terms of my education in the broadest sense, how I'm being seen what opportunities are available, as well as confinement as a mind confined to a body. I've never felt like my mind fits into my brain. That conceit seems really arbitrary. I mean, I know that I have a brain and I know that it functions and I can tell that it's functioning, but when I'm using my mind and my imagination, or using my mind and body to connect to something more spiritual, my brain doesn't seem very important all of a sudden. And I I think about the ancient Egyptians, and they thought that the soul was located in the heart. I don't know what they thought about the brain, but that, that always struck me that like, we haven't always thought that our thoughts and feelings are located in the brain. And I don't know if we really know anything about it. So I think that there is something that feels like imprisonment in mortality and physicality. I mean, I think that's part of the definition of physicality is that it is physical. It isn't not physical. Therefore, there are boundaries around it. And it feels like prison. Mm Mm-hmm. Following on, speaking more about the mind,
1: I don't know whether it's a result of their confinement, but a number of your characters have quite addictive minds. We've got Eileen, who is fairly sort of obsessed with how she looks and also with money, and she's trying to escape her somewhat gin-soaked father. The narrator in My Year of Rest and Relaxation, who is addicted to, um, or perhaps not addicted to, but she takes a lot of pills. So I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about spending time with these quite fragile characters, whether that in itself
0: is challenging. Hmm. Well, I guess I'll get to that second. But first, about addictive personality. I'm not sure that I ascribe to that whole thing. I know that there are people who are more prone to becoming addicted to things and then there are certain substances that are more addictive than others but addiction is something that results from an attempt to cope with either an internal or external source of suffering and to be addicted to something isn't always necessarily bad when we fall in love with someone, that's supposed to be a good thing. But the way that I would think about it is, well, we're just becoming addicted because suddenly this new thing or person is giving us solace or a solution to the misery we felt when we were alone. I mean, not to poo-poo love. Love is awesome. But I would just say like (laughs) there's, we can be addicted to everything. And I think because addiction is so associated with things that are destructive and self-destructive, both. It kind of gets a bad rap. So I try not to think of it as like, oh, the problem is the addiction. No, the addiction is a way of coping with what in this fictional world is causing my character to feel pressure. And then oftentimes as... As characters go in narrative fiction, the very thing that you want is the thing that's going to destroy you. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be a substance or a person, but a motivation. The second part of your question obviously, all of this is just like coming out of my own mind. So, when I see a character, and she's in a situation, I'm going to, my first thought is, like, well, how is she going to deal with it? And if you don't deal with it, then you're just nothing. Like, you could deal with it by denying it, or you could deal with it by trying to ameliorate it. But people really don't know how to fix things, so they just try to cope. So I know that. I do that. It's not always effective. And I think where it gets interesting in fiction is when that, like I was saying, like, when you're trying to cope with something, and that very coping thing is the thing that fucks you up more than the thing that you were trying to cope with. That gets interesting. And then sometimes this magical thing happens that you learn. And I think part of why I'm, I stick with my characters is that I feel like they're going to teach me something because they're going to go through something I couldn't go through and therefore learn what I couldn't get to without them. Mm-hmm. I also, on
1: a slightly lighter note, want to talk a little bit about humor because, among other things, your novel is very funny, and I wondered whether whether you set out to write a funny a funny book.
0: I don't know if I set out to write a funny book, but it ended up being really funny. <laughs> I mean, I think I think that my unnamed protagonist herself. She didn't really make me laugh. She made me kind of like nod, sometimes in amusement, but it was really the other characters that came in and sort of interrupted her life or characters that she sought out that really, I thought, were funny people. Her best friend, Reva, who is so over-the-top, needy. Her psychiatrist, who's just over the line of satire, this on-again, off-again, asshole boyfriend who is just sort of the apotheosis of jerk. Those people made me laugh. And I think that levity was—the humor in the book was crucial because in many ways the premise is really dreary. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> <No>? <laughs> so— yeah, it had to be funny, and not in a way that I was saying, oh, it has to be funny because people aren't going to want to read this because the premise is so dreary, but it just has to be funny to in order to exist in some kind of balance and for me to be able to tolerate it. It was like the, the humour in the book is a way of coping with the book.
1: I also I found your your portrayal of the art world really amusing, the kind of art world players, even the works of art, which at some point comes up that they're intended to be subversive, but as your nameless narrator calls them, they're actually just canned counterculture crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> I assume this bit was really fun to write. It um, was. Did you research? Did you go to galleries and spend time
0: in that kind of world? Or um, It's funny how things come together because I really haven't been one for galleries very much. I mean, I definitely love art. I particularly love painting. There isn't that much painting in the book, but there is a lot of sculpture and sort of conceptual art. um, And it just so happened that in the year that this book takes place, that was the year in New York City that I was interested in going down to galleries in Chelsea. I mean, that's not a um, total coincidence, but... Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, 2000 and 2001 were a really interesting time, I thought, because art was becoming so subversive in America. There seemed to be room for a lot of irreverent playfulness and disgust and anger in a way that didn't actually threaten anything because we were, some of us, especially in New York, really still living off of the fat of the 90s which is why when shit hit the fan in 2001 we were so unprepared for it psychologically so the art is in a way a function of excess the art in the book is supposed to say, i mean on the most basic level like people are ridiculous and they will pay attention to whatever is put in front of them, despite it maybe having questionable value. But then when I was actually writing what the art was, it was so weird and funny that I got really into it and actually developed a character who was one of the artists, Ping Shi, who ends up playing like an enormous part of and the development of my protagonist toward the end of the book. I don't want to give it away, but, like, yeah, it was interesting. I came at the art with utter cynicism and left thinking, like, well, this actually is really important, even if I think the art sucks, at least in my book. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: um, another thing to do with the year, I'm curious as to why you chose to set the novel during it, in 2000,
0: and have it culminate with nine eleven. Uh-huh. I didn't start off thinking that's when I was writing. I started off thinking, okay, this is some hazy 200-something, or later even. And it really wasn't, I mean, not to repeat myself, but it really wasn't until I figured out that my character had been a quote-unquote gallery girl, this sort of pointless position, that she had in an art gallery in Chelsea during this time, early 2000s, that I realized that I had been writing a book about that period. And then as the plot developed, it made perfect sense. I mean, there was this, like, if I had set the book in an America in 2017, the decision to sleep for a year would feel completely understandable as a response to what was happening culturally and politically and technology. I mean, there was there now, too. I mean, there's just so much that I think everybody feels like they want to sleep through. But in 2000, you know, not everybody was connected to their cell phone. There was still a sense of that, like, live, like, human liveliness in New York City. And there was still a sense of that, like, radical... Grit and swish of money and dirt. I mean, it was still an interesting place. It wasn't totally digitized. It was not a virtual reality. It was a reality. To take a year out of reality is a much more radical choice than to take a year out of what is reality now. It almost would be meaningless, Basically, if I wrote a book about somebody sleeping in 2017 or 18, it would be like, oh, that's all about Donald Trump. And it wouldn't, I don't know, it wouldn't be interesting to me.
1: Mm -hmm. Following on talking a little bit more about New York, I think you've said in past interviews that you, you felt slightly claustrophobic living in New York, that you were surrounded by so many peers with similar
0: ambitions. Do you still feel that way? No, not really. And I think it really wasn't. I mean, I lived in New York for a decade. So it wasn't so much that I constantly felt surrounded by peers competing with me to write fiction. It was just that New York can get very isolated in New York City, even though it is like one of the most exciting places I've ever lived. And I miss it and I love it. And every time I go there, I'm like, amazed and terrified and feel at home. But It's easy to forget the world outside of New York. And and actually, I think that the ease with which we learn to navigate the city kind of dumbs and dulls us from a lot of the more beautiful and subtle aspects of the human experience. So to get out of it, was sort of to reconnect to a part of myself that reminded me more of my childhood, a more naive place where I could slow down and really consider everything a little bit with less mediation, more immediately, I guess. And about my peers, I mean, New York is a really, really literary place. I mean, only in the sense that the literary world there is very vibrant It's where publishing happens, and a lot of writers live there. And now when I go back, I mean, I almost solely go back to work, so I am kind of still in that bubble. But I don't feel that sense of competition. I really like living in Los Angeles. I really like it. If you meet a writer, if someone says, like, oh, I'm a writer, you just assume that they're writing movies. (laughs) And so writing books, really, nobody gives a shit, I guess. But, yeah. And your
1: your own writing and what interests you as a writer, how has that, if it has changed, how has that changed over the years?
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I think maybe in some ways it hasn't changed because my approach to writing, especially novels, has been really one of a spiritual project. Like this is a spiritual project. I'm being called to do this. And I'm not going to try to figure out why because if I try to, my answer will be incorrect, and then I will be sort of dashing through what I'm meant to experience instead of surrendering and experiencing it. So when, when novels come to me, I kind of signed this agreement with myself and God that I'm going to go through and do this. And it's a total trip. Oftentimes it's a fucking nightmare. And then, you know, deeper and more satisfying and more mind-blowing than anything else I could do with my time. So my approach has always been one of... I mean, it sounds really ridiculous, but like service, like service to myself. And I've sacrificed a lot because of it. I mean, it's been really, I'm married now, but I didn't used to be. <laughs> and it would have been impossible, you know, to have close relationships with people. I mean, I've always had like, you know, really, really close friends, but um it's hard to be that invested in something and, you know, be able to just, like, run out and do shit and forget it. I'm, like, way too intense for that. I'm trying to find more of a balance and maybe more on a craft level, I could say, which is probably what you were asking. I'm much more interested now in making the writing invisible, whereas when I first started writing, like, in before I published anything, and and even with McGlue, my first book, I was really concerned with the writing being a tangible, material stuff, the stuff of words that you could really hold and see and look at and hold on to and pause at any moment and look at a sentence as a physical structure. Now I'm more interested in Writing in such a way that the writing becomes invisible and the reader can simply experience without efforting through the words. And that doesn't mean that I'm writing easier per se, it just means that my narrative voices are maybe. I'm interested in having a narrative voice that is less tenuous and more fluid. I'm not sure if I've really understood it yet, but this is my interest. The The book I'm working on now is narrated by a ghost. And a ghost shouldn't sound like the way I sound right now. <laughs> Her voice is really different than mine. So I'm trying to figure that out. It sounds great. I'm excited to read it. I hope I can do it. <laughs>
1: I'm just going to end with uh, one final question about So, when did you decide that you wanted to tell stories, that you wanted to be a writer?
0: I think it was in sixth grade, which in the U.S. I think you're eight or nine. No, I think you're 10. Somewhere around then, I read The Necklace by Maupassant, and it totally blew my mind. I don't know why it was that story maybe because I was so young. I mean, obviously, I actually, I shared that story with some peers in a kind of workshop situation I was in several years ago. And the overwhelming responses, is, this is so sexist. But I didn't know when I was nine, I wasn't thinking. I mean, obviously, I wasn't thinking about it in that way, because I mean, I still don't think about it in that way. I think about it as this short story that functions like someone's an entire life and how your entire life can get fucked up because of one personality flaw that leads to a decision, that leads to an accident, that leads to entrapment. And then at the end, you realize you're an idiot. <laughs> just not like, that was... It was so funny and heartbreaking... And it really excited me in a new way. And um, I think that's when I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did it. Thanks.
1: Um, Otessa Moschweg. thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Many thanks to Otessa Moschweg. The paperback of My Year of Rest and Relaxation, published in the UK by Jonathan Cape, is out now. The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Chloe Ashby. Thank you very much for listening.